Today's scripture is from Timothy, 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 16 through 4th chapter, verses 5. And I'm so glad that we have Bibles now in our pews. If you'd like to follow along, it's on page 201. All scripture is inspired by God and is useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. In the presence of God and Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and in view of his appearing and his kingdom, I solemnly urge you, proclaim the message, be persistent whether the time is favorable or unfavorable. Convince, rebuke, and encourage with the utmost patience in teaching. For the time is coming when people will not put up with sound doctrine, but have itching ears. They will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own desires, and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander away to myths. As for you, always be sober, enduring suffering, do the work of an evangelist, carry out your ministry fully. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks. Thank you, Alan. A few years ago, I was sitting in the fellowship hall of Pleasant Valley United Methodist Church in Wichita, sitting around the sort of tables that are to be found in pretty much any fellowship hall, sitting on folding metal chairs, gathered up with six or seven middle school and high school students who were thinking about what it might be like to be a pastor. We were there at a weekend retreat to explore what it means to be called by God, and we had just had a great conversation about the Bible. Now, these were kids who had spent a lot of time in Sunday school, so they had things to tell me about the Bible, like they knew how it's a library of 66 different books. We had talked about what it means to call it the Word of God. We had talked about how we use it in study and devotion. We had talked about how we let it shape and how we let it guide our lives. And then I asked if anyone had any questions. And one young woman, she raised her hand. She's maybe 13 or 14 years old. And she looked at me with this wondering face and honest eyes and all kinds of earnestness. And she said, Pastor Amy, where are the dinosaurs in the Bible? <laughs> oh. Um, I said, that's a very good question which is what all teachers say when they're trying to buy themselves some time. <laughs> My mind was spinning. What, what had she learned at church? What had she been told by her pastor and her teachers and her parents? Had they told her that the Bible had no mistakes? Had they told her the Bible was never wrong? Had they told her the Bible was perfect in every single letter? Or was she ready to hear that the story of creation we get in Genesis doesn't match up perfectly with what science has discovered in rock and dirt. How could I answer her fully and honestly, but carefully enough to not somehow undo her whole understanding of the Bible in one moment? All of this ran through my mind in a few seconds as she looked patiently at me, and you can imagine all the other kids were tuned in as well, 
waiting for wisdom. Finally, I took a deep breath and I said, well, there aren't any dinosaurs in the Bible. Why do you think that might be? I don't think she realized what a big question she had asked. I don't know if she had any idea that that is one of a hundred questions we could ask the Bible that would reveal some of its holes or tensions or contradictions or dangerous passages. But I believe anyone who reads the Bible regularly or thoroughly in 2021 has to admit that there are parts of the Bible that are problematic. Parts of the Bible are problematic. Not most of it, not even large sections of it, not the most important parts of it, but it is true that more than just one or two passages conflict with other passages of the Bible, or they contradict our understanding of the world via science, or they violate our moral understanding of the world. It's true. This doesn't mean we shouldn't take the Bible seriously or consider it authoritative for our lives of faith. We've, we've just spent the last three weeks talking about why the Bible is an important book and how we understand it to be the Word of God and the Word of God for our lives. But I believe in order to take the Bible seriously, we have to be honest that there are parts of it that are problematic. So what are we going to do about that? Well, one option an option that's taken by some Christians today is to try to talk our way out of the problematic parts. For example, this week I googled the question, where are the dinosaurs in the Bible? And I came upon a rather astounding op-ed written in the Morrow County Sentinel, a newspaper from a small town in Ohio, somewhere between Columbus and Cleveland. And this was an opinion piece written in 2018 by a young pastor in town answering this exact question, where are the dinosaurs in the Bible? Now my answer to that young woman was, they aren't there. His answer was, they are there. Pastor Howard says that the dinosaurs and people actually must have existed at the same time, even though the Bible doesn't mention them specifically. And he knows this, he says, because the account of creation in Genesis says that on day six of creation, God created all the things that walk on the land. So that must include dinosaurs. And also that's the same day that God created people, day six. So that means dinosaurs and humans lived on the earth at the same time. Now, Pastor Howard says those scientists that tell us that dinosaur bones are 200 million years old, which is way older than humans, well, they're just wrong. He goes on to explain that most of the dinosaurs obviously died in Noah's flood, okay? That's why we have so many bones to dig up today. He did say that a few small dinosaurs or young ones were put on the ark, of course, though the Bible doesn't say that explicitly, but when they got off the ark, the climate had changed because of that big flood, and people at that point were allowed to hunt, so that's probably what made the dinosaurs go extinct. Hunting dinosaurs, those are some brave people. <laughs> now, he says, when it, this is a quote, when it comes to dinosaurs, there are two sides in conflict, evolution and the Bible. If we accept what evolution says about dinosaurs, then the Bible cannot be our authority. It cannot be trusted. It can be ignored as a moral standard as it is all across America today. We can't blame the dinosaurs for that. 
The blame rests on people that reject the truth of God's word. Okay, so that is one option. When we find problematic parts in the Bible, we can just ignore science, ignore human reason, and come up with our own explanations to preserve the idea that the Bible is true in every letter and every detail. You might guess I am not going to suggest that approach for us today. So another option when we come across problematic or troubling parts of the Bible, we can just cut them out. Just ignore them. This is actually the approach that was taken by the senior pastor of the church I grew up in. He just refused to read any parts of the Bible he didn't like. Now, this could include actually a sentence or a word right in the middle of a passage. He'd just skip over that part. I actually suspect a, whole, suspect a whole lot of people in the congregation had no idea how often that he did it. I mean, I didn't know until I went away to college and started my religious studies degree and started reading the Bible a whole lot more, and then all of a sudden I could hear all the parts that he was just omitting. It made it a lot easier for him to preach, I'm sure. He only had to talk about the stuff he liked, <laughs> the stuff with which he agreed. Now, my pastor, he was actually not even an innovator in this way. A lot of Christian people have done this for a very long time. You might know that perhaps the most famous person in terms of cutting up the Bible is one Thomas Jefferson, right? This is what Smithsonian Magazine has to say about Thomas Jefferson's version of the Bible. It says, Jefferson, along with some other founding fathers, was influenced by the principles of deism, which is a theological idea that God is kind of like a watchmaker who just started the earth and then lets it go without any kind of uh, further intervention. So Jefferson was really interested in science and the theological questions it raised, uh, and he was a champion of religious freedom, of course, but his belief system was sufficiently outside the mainstream that in the 1800 presidential election, his opponents labeled him a howling atheist. But Jefferson was devoted to the teachings of Christ. He just didn't always agree with how they were interpreted, including in the Gospels. He considered the Gospels unworthy correspondence. So Jefferson just created his own Bible. He took a sharp instrument, like maybe a pen knife, and he took copies of the New Testament, and he literally cut out the parts that he liked and pasted it onto new blank paper. And he uh, wanted to pull out the parts of uh, Christ that he, that he liked, distinguishing it from what he called the corruption of schism, uh, schismatizing followers. Big vocabulary Jefferson had, schismatizing. Okay, Jefferson produced an 84-page Bible in 1820, and he bound it in red leather, and he titled it The Life and Morals of Jesus of Nazareth. Now, you can maybe guess a whole lot of what he didn't put in there were miraculous events. He didn't want anything in there he, he considered contrary to reason. And so his, his gospel, for instance, uh, concludes with Christ in the tomb, just kind of omits that whole resurrection part. In looking for information about the Jeffersonian Bible, I found an article from a magazine called Christianity Today. The, the headline was, Thomas Jefferson tries to fix the Bible he only succeeded in making it sad. Sad. <laughs> Sorry, it really makes me laugh. <laughs> okay, so obviously, cutting out the parts of the Bible that we don't like 
that's not really a good or faithful way to read the Bible either. Because the Bible is actually meant to trouble us. Yes, it's meant to comfort us and to console us and to bring us peace. But sometimes, in order to do that, sometimes it has to actually trouble us. Because the Bible's job is to save us. Remember, the point of Scripture is to tell us about God, teach us about God's will and God's way in the world. And my friends, that is different, God's will and God's way. It's different than what we would do if left to our own devices. This might be news to you today, but we are not automatically righteous and good people. The Bible labels that as our sin. And it teaches us that sin is uh, what that sin is, and it reveals to us that God saves us from ourselves. God saves us. God wipes clean whatever it is that we have done, and God embraces us with an unending love, which is wonderful. It's wonderful. It's the best news ever. But, you know, we don't just instantly change into perfect and holy people. We are an ongoing project, and it takes time for us to get fully in tune with the ways of God. It takes a long time for us to figure out how to live this holy life day in and day out, which means that when we read some things in the Bible about God's will and God's way in the world, we don't like them. We're going to read some things in the Bible that trouble us, some things that make us say, really? I'm not so interested in that. Like, remember how Jesus said that we're supposed to forgive people 70 times, seven times? I mean, that makes me pretty uncomfortable. Or how about when Jesus said, it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of the needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God? I mean, really? I'm not sure I want to accept that. Can't we just cut that part out? Or how about in the Old Testament when we read that we're supposed to welcome the stranger into our midst and provide hospitality no matter who the stranger is? I mean, y'all, there are some strangers I would rather just go on not liking very much. The Bible is supposed to make us uncomfortable. It's supposed to push us and challenge us and force us to look at the world differently. The Bible is supposed to disturb us even while it comforts us. Now, is that a contradiction? Sure, but it's a holy contradiction. So we can't just go around cutting out the parts of the Bible we don't like. But yet, the Bible is not perfect. There are a few small parts of it that are downright dangerous. So our difficult task is to discern together, not just as individuals, but to discern together as a church, our difficult task is to discern together the difference between when the Bible is wrong and when it's simply telling us something that we don't really want to hear, but that's actually the gospel truth. Is that easy? No. The scripture we read for today, this word of counsel from 2 Timothy, about how to regard the Bible. It, it challenges us in this way. It says, all scripture is inspired by God. God breathed, it says in Greek. All scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that everyone who belongs to God may be proficient, equipped for every good work. The passage is warning us the Bible is going to change you. It's going to change you. It, it's there for reproof and for correction. The Bible's not perfect, but we still know that it gives authority uh, over our lives. 
It tells us the will and the way of God. So we can know that it's not perfect and still see it as trustworthy. We can still see it as trustworthy. And I think the way that we do that is by saying, proclaiming that the Bible will not fail, but it is not inerrant. It is not inerrant. The Bible will not fail, but it is not inerrant. Now, as a United Methodist Church, we do not say, we do not have anywhere in our articles of religion in the Book of Discipline, nowhere do we claim that the Bible is inerrant. And that's a big word that just means without error, right? Free of mistakes. But we don't claim that about the Bible. You know, interestingly, nobody really claimed that about the Bible until about 100 years ago. If we read through all the ancient writings of church leaders, we will not find anyone use that term uh, in ancient Christianity. They knew the Bible had errors. They knew it had mistakes. They just weren't troubled by them, and they didn't think that those mistakes sat at the heart of the gospel. It's really only in the last hundred or so years, as a response to enlightenment and as a response to science, that some Christians have begun to declare that the Bible was out without a single mistake, that it is inerrant. There are some churches that still consider this a fundamental of Christian belief. They say either you agree with that or you're not following Jesus. But that is not the United Methodist way and has never been. Instead, we say that the Bible will not fail. The Bible's trustworthy, it's true. It will not fail to bring to us salvation. It will reveal everything we need to know to embrace the saving love of God. John Wesley said that the Bible contained all that is necessary for salvation. So what we need to know to have our souls saved, it's to be found there. He did not ever claim, nor do we, that everything there is to know in the whole world can be found in the Bible. Like, there's nothing about dinosaurs. It's just that everything necessary for salvation can be found there. The Bible is our guide to faith. It tells us about God. And there are just a few places where the writer's own humanness got in the way, parts that very carefully, with great prayer, with lots of conversation, with using our best tools of reason and experience, with the help of the Holy Spirit, that we can say they're so problematic that they do not represent the Word of God, and so we can leave them aside as a church. We don't do it lightly. We don't do it quickly. We do it with great care because we believe in the authority and the goodness and the power of Scripture. And doing that, it does not unravel the whole Bible. Right? The, the Bible is not like some giant house of cards that if you pull out one small piece, the whole thing is going to come crashing down. The Bible is so much stronger than that, so much more resilient than that, so much uh, more powerful in doing its work of transforming our lives. So, my challenge to you this week, same as it's been the last three weeks, read the Bible, study the Bible, find a way to make Scripture a part of your week this week and the next week and the next week. If you need help doing that, come talk to me. We'll figure out a plan or I'll suggest some disciplines that you might want to try. But embrace anew this beautiful book that we've been given as a gift from God and let it change us, let it shape us. Let it make us holy. Thanks be to God. Amen.